You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. Uh, thank you for attending Grace Community Church this morning. I know, uh, as Dan said, You've been very blessed already. I hope that will continue to be the case as we hear from the Word. Thank you so much, worship team. Uh, Beautiful and worshipful and puts us to the place where uh, we desire to hear from the Lord. I want to mention a couple of things just quickly. First, potluck today. If you did not plan to stay, you didn't bring food, that's okay. Please stay anyway. Potluck Sunday is a good Sunday to be here. If you just happen to be here for the first time, you chose a good Sunday. And let me encourage you, if you would, I know I know it's tempting to be with people that you know, but um, try to sit with someone you don't know all that well and get to know uh, the family here at Grace a little bit. <clears throat> Um, appropriate that we hear from love, with love for, for, from Jesus uh, this morning. It's our Benevolence Offering Sunday. At the end of the uh, last Sunday of the month, we take a Benevolence Offering. Again, if you're here for the first time, we don't take two offerings every Sunday. Uh, there's three or four Sundays in the year where we don't. T- no, I'm just kidding. We just take one, two, two offerings on the, on the last Sunday of the month. Uh, benevolence offering to, to share the love of Christ, both those in the body and outside of the body as well. And I hope a lot of you will uh, check out what's going on up there at Tryon and South Saunders out, uh, uh, on Saturday mornings and serve the Lord in this way. There are a lot of wonderful, worthy missions, local, worldwide, that we would love to support, but we just can't as a church support so much, but we can support in lots of different ways. And you may be led to give a donation, a monthly donation to, uh, to this wonderful ministry that's doing what the church is called to do. Um, because next Sunday is Easter, it's a five Sunday month, it's the first Sunday of the month, we're going to bump uh, the Lord's table uh, to the second and fourth Sundays of the month. I need to make sure Scott Chambly knows that, but deacons, elders. It will be the second and the fourth Sunday of the month. Actually, the elders made this decision. Um, because we'll have so many visitors, and hopefully we'll have a lot of visitors who are not believers in communion. The Lord's table is a, it's a meal for believers. If we had it every Sunday, we wouldn't. Uh, not do it, but since we have it twice a month, we're just going to bump it. And let me encourage you next week. Look, I never know how many people are going to be. We never know who's going to be here and who's not. We're fairly full, not quite as full as we were last week. Next week, we, we typically have anywhere from 40 to 60 more people than normal than the week before. So be prepared to, to squeeze in and to welcome those that you don't know, which will be somebody who, like you, has been here for two years probably, but that's okay too. That's a good chance for you to get to know them. So let's just pray for the Lord for the gospel to be very clear next week. You know, the gospel is all through Scripture. And we're finding that lots of people call Isaiah the fifth gospel It will be so evident over and over in this book that can be so harsh and feel so judgmental at the same time just turns a corner and there's the most brilliant salvation of the Lord in the book of Isaiah. I'm going to start this morning thinking about a couple of things that are very important to all of us in our day and age. Perhaps you're familiar with Brene Brown who is a research professor um, at the University of Houston Graduate School of Social Work, and she's a YouTube sensation. Um, She spends a great deal of time doing research uh, in the different ways ways, and speaking on these things, different ways that people experience and express courage, vulnerability, authenticity, and shame. In her wildly popular TED Talks, Brown distinguishes between guilt and shame by saying this, and it's a pretty good distinction. Guilt is an admission 
that I have done something bad. Shame is a feeling that I am bad. See the difference? Guilt, I've done something bad. Uh, Shame, I am bad. Our own Beth Carter, you may call her Brene Carter after today, but it's not. It's our own Beth Carter has brought a study, uh, her study to light in our home group these last several weeks talking about um, guilt and shame. And she talks about how so many today, particularly millennials, but by no means only millennials, have very little concept or understanding of guilt, but they are deeply and personally acquainted with shame. Now, the difference between Brene um, uh, Brown and Beth Carter, in addition to the 41 million YouTube hits that uh, Brene Carter has, is that Brene Brown has identified the seemingly subtle distinctions between guilt and shame that become obvious once stated. It's like, yeah, well, of course that's it. But Beth knows that the solution to guilt and shame lies outside of ourselves. One person has said this is a problem that, that, that plagues humanity and here's the way we can deal with it. We can become better people if we'll just look at it this way or that way. And, and the other person recognizes that if God does not fix our problems, they will not be fixed. No matter how insignificant or how great your problems seem, if God does not deal with our problems, they won't be fixed. We're in the early uh, days of a study in the book of Isaiah where guilt and shame both are front and center. The prophet Isaiah, who lived and ministered some 700 plus years before Jesus was born, called God's covenant people in Judah to acknowledge their guilt and repent of their sins so that they would avoid the judgment of God which would uncover their shame. If you don't repent of your sin, he would say, then God will uncover your shame. Sin, if unaddressed, always leads to shame. Although sometimes we feel ashamed because of things that have happened completely outside of our control. Things that people have wickedly done to us through no fault of our own cause shame. Please know this. Please, everybody, please know this. It is never... My heart to add to anybody's pain because of something that someone has done to you. My heart is always, it's always to weep with those who weep and understand the pain you're going through. It's a clever trick of Satan for all of us. For all of us to be kept from dealing with the guilt that each of us faces before the Lord in any number of ways. We, we come to resent God and we resent others because of our own pain. Think of Satan's role in what happened in the very beginning of men and women's time on earth. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, their eyes were open. And as we're told in Genesis 3, they became aware that what? They were naked. Now, was their sin a sexual sin? No, it wasn't. But they became aware of their nakedness. And they were ashamed. They were exposed. And so once they were exposed, they fell on their faces and cried out to God for forgiveness for the rebellion against him. Is that the way the story goes? Not at all. They covered themselves. They hid from God, seeking to cover their shame. There is not time to go into the details of what happened, but you already know the basics of what happened. Instead of confessing their sin fully, they shifted blame. They deflected, and they tried to excuse themselves. Well, this woman, that serpent, look, Lord, it's almost like, Lord, it's all your fault. You're the one who put me in this circumstance. This woman that thou gavest me. What a brilliant way to address God when your sin has been exposed. This person, probably you women say this more than men. This husband that thou hast given me. I don't know what to do with him. And the Lord's saying, I don't know. No, he's he's not. Uh, But he's at least saying, "Mm, you do have a tough one there. (laughs) So how did God respond to them? 
in his mercy, his grace covered them properly. How were they covered? With animal skins. What had to happen for the, to get those animal skins? Death had to be a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, in order for God to cover Adam and Eve's sin and shame. Instead of putting Adam and Eve to death, God executed judgment on the animals and their sin was covered. Furthermore, God told them that Eve's descendant would crush the power of Satan, but it would happen through judgment on the Redeemer himself. The Redeemer would take God's judgment so that Adam and Eve and their descendants might have life. What happened in the Garden of Eden happens over and over again in Scripture. James Hamilton, who is a professor of biblical theology uh, at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, has proposed that the primary theme in Scripture, one theme he says can summarize all of the truth in Scripture with these few words, God's glory in salvation through judgment. Now, look, there are lots of theologians that you and I would respect highly, like D.A. Carson or Andreas Kossenberger up the road at Wake Forest um, at Southeastern Baptist Seminary, who would say, look, the Bible, it is impossible to summarize the Bible so easily and, and simply as this. But I seriously doubt either of those theologians would, would question Hamilton's contribution to our understanding of Scripture. One of the beautiful things about Scripture is this. There are truths that were hammered out a long time ago that we believe as a body in Christ, the Trinity, salvation by grace through faith, these things we were talking about in our Grace Connection class this morning. But every generation must bring new contributions to um, theology. God is always calling us to continue learning and continue understanding Him in better and deeper ways. And this thought of James Hamilton is extremely helpful for us. Just think about how we see God's glory in salvation through judgment. We saw it at the garden. Is that what happened with Noah? God distinguished between Noah's family and everybody else. When God um, brought the Israelites out of Egypt, when he established the, the people in the land, in bringing salvation to many of us through Jesus' death on the cross. <clears throat> Listen, I, I very much wanted <clears throat> to spend time thinking about Palm Sunday and Holy Week, and this truth absolutely speaks to it, but we're not as focused on that as I would like to be, but just understand that it's all part and parcel of the same message, that there must be judgment in order for salvation to come. And then, at last of all, at the second coming of Christ, when the sheep will be separated from the goats, and some will go to glory while others will go to eternal punishment. That's tough for us, I think all of us at some level. Especially when you realize it is only because of God's mercy that you're going to spend eternity with Christ in heaven. Not because of your goodness, not because of your brilliance, not because of... Anything you've done but because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross and God's love for you. And we're going to deal with this theme today. And, and it's another one of those Sundays. I'm going to say, look, there are no points. We're just going through. We're going to look in the New Testament as well as Isaiah. But hang with it and try to understand God's glory in salvation through judgment. Today's text, Isaiah 4, verses 2 through 6 tells us of God's glory and salvation through judgment. In other words, God receives glory in mercifully saving helplessly lost men and women, and he does, through, does so through the judgment of a sacrifice. This morning, we'll read and understand, seek to understand the text, and it will also consider Jesus' death on the cross in which he glorified God by taking the judgment for our sin that was necessary for our salvation. Our text is Isaiah 4, 2 through 6. 
It's our custom to stand as the word is read, so I'll ask you if you would please stand. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. In that day, the branch of the Lord, that's Jesus, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. By the way, I'll say it several times today. Daughters of Zion is representative men and women. Lots of times in scripture, men means all people. Here, daughters of Zion means all people, all who were saved. The da- when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst, midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts to the truth of your word and give us hearts to trust you. Even if the words are difficult, words we don't like. Help us to trust and respond. It's not within us to do so. So by the Holy Spirit, draw us to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Last week, we read a very difficult passage in Isaiah 2 and 3. I mean, several of our sins were identified right along with the people of Israel who were alive in Isaiah's day. Superstition, unholy alliances, place in our security and wealth and political power, idolatry and pride. One section dealt with the haughty women of Jerusalem. Today's text continues to address the women of Jerusalem, but in an entirely different light. And in this case, again, the women are representative of all saved men and women, those men and women who are children of God. I'd planned to cover all the way through Isaiah 5 today, but alas, it was not to be. I I worry that... um, you know, depending on what your eschatology is, that we'll be halfway through the millennium or halfway into the new heavens and the new earth before we're through with Isaiah. But that's okay because it's a good word from Isaiah. And like I've said repeatedly, it takes us everywhere in Scripture. We already have covered quite a bit of Scripture today. It helps us understand how the Bible works. And, you know, when everybody starts saying, okay, enough of Isaiah, then we'll, we'll get through very quickly. Today... 26 chapters from the book of Isaiah. Um, The good news of Isaiah 4 is just too important to hurry through. Did you see this theme of God's glory in salvation through judgment in the text? In the chapter preceding this one, Isaiah had prophesied the fall of Judah. and, and, And he had said, men will die in battle and then men and women will be carted off in chains and ropes and they'll have shaved heads and, and, and they will be humiliated as they're taken off to captivity. God's people would be humble because of their sinful ways and their shameful behavior. But most of all, because they were unwilling to repent of their sin when God called them to repent. See... Sometimes a hard word is not what we want to hear, but it's God's gracious word to us. When he says repent, it's a time to listen and a time to say, God, forgive me. I acknowledge my sin before you. I repent of my sin. Since we know that God has much to say to us through Isaiah, we would do well to to heed his cause for repentance when he exposes our sin. But we would also do well to read the book of Isaiah through the lens of the New Testament, which tells us 
that the cleansing of sinful people happens because of the cross of Christ and his resurrection from the dead. So let's break down our text a little bit, beginning with verses 2 to 4. It seems so clear to me yesterday because I've been soaking in it all week. And then as I was reading it, I was thinking, wow, that probably feels a little bit confusing. But let's, let's make sense of it. Uh, the people who were alive in Isaiah's day would have understood Isaiah to be prophesying if, if they listened to him well enough and they knew that Isaiah was saying, you're going to go into captivity. Now he's prophesying about a time when a remnant, a small group of people will be brought back into the land and it will be glorious in that day. The daughters of Zion uh, would no longer be sinful. None of the people would be sinful sinful, but rather they would be holy. So who is it that would be holy? Those who had been recorded for life in Jerusalem. They will be called holy. Everyone, verse 3, who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. How did that happen? How did they get... How did they get their names in this, in this book, this, this book of life? Because of their righteousness? No. But because God washed away their filth and saved them through judgment, through a spirit of burning. When we read Isaiah through a New Testament lens, we understand the daughters of Zion to refer not only to the people of Jerusalem who would come back or the people of Judah who would come back to Jerusalem in this state, but all men and women who believe in Jesus. Look, if this is your first time here at Grace and you're wondering how we got that connection, go to the website. Listen, it's only four sermons so far uh, in the book of Isaiah up to this point. That will establish the connection. This, these early days are very important in understanding the book of Isaiah. But we understand those who are holy to be all of us who believe in Christ. We also know that our blessings are not only a result of our acknowledgement of sin, but because Jesus, because of Jesus' death, which we pay special attention to in Holy Week. Wow, it's one of those days. But I'm saying that a lot more than I used to, you know. Sin must be judged. So says a holy God. Now, who are we to argue with a holy God? I, I, I know you've seen people reprimanded at school or at work or at a family gathering. And you think about the person who is doing the reprimanding and you say, wow, that's harsh. All he did, all she did was this or that. When it comes to God, though, we don't get to argue. Although we all do. We all argue with God about what's right and wrong. In some way or another, we argue with him. Why do you suppose we argue with God so much about judgment especially? Maybe we're trying to cover our shame and or justify our sin. Why do we do it? Because our great-great-great-great-great-grandparents did. What was Adam and Eve's sin? We didn't identify it a while ago. What was it? It was pride. It was a desire to be like God. How absurd that the creation thinks it can be equal to the creator. Well, okay, if you're into AI, you might say, one day we'll see about that. But look, who's over all of this? I think it's all Tower of Babel. Somehow it's coming down, down the road. We can't, we're not going to build that tower, but so high, folks. And God's going to bring it down. But why is it that we, we, we think as the creation that we get to determine what is right and wrong? Either we, either we have a benevolent, loving God and a holy and righteous who never changes God that created us, or we're in big trouble. If we believe he is who he says he is, then we have to say, okay, you have the right to say what you want to. But we, as we'll find out in Isaiah 5, and the reason I really don't want to do Isaiah 5 by itself is it's almost all judgment, and it's what we're going to have to do in a few weeks. But it's in there that he says, 
Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. The last time I did research on this, everybody's going to die. Right? Even if Yaval Harari, history professor at Hebrew University, best-selling author, Sapiens and Homo Deus, same as God, thinks that we can achieve immortality. We're all going to die. Elon Musk doesn't want to live forever, but he does want to colonize Mars so that when disaster comes upon the earth, partly through AI, then the chosen few can escape to Mars. Thank God. Well, no, I get in trouble. But death and judgment await us all. Far better that we hide in Jesus instead of arguing about why we are right in motive and behavior, which truly is only an attempt to cover our shame. Isn't it interesting when we deal with shame, we don't deal with it properly, we get angry, we get defensive, we start pointing fingers. Man, do you not find yourself doing the very thing you accuse other people of doing? I do. unknowingly, unwittingly, I find myself shaming other people. I don't mean to because the shame game is killing me. I hate that in our society today. But it's so easy to do it, cover up our own sin. It's to point fingers at one another. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed these beautiful words recorded in John 17. Let's read verses 1 to 5 of what is truly the Lord's Prayer. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that, your son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is, the, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Do you see how these words are, are, are very similar to the passage in Isaiah? You may be thinking, where's the judgment? Where is the burning? It's in Jesus' words, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus glorified the Lord, we're told in verse 4, uh, by completing all that the Father had sent him to accomplish. He had lived a perfect life and thus he was eligible to be a perfect sacrifice. You and I can't die for one another. If Allison and I stand there before the Lord and he says, you you have to pay for your sins. And I'll say, I'll I'll take her punishment. He's like, no, she pays for hers. You pay for for your own. She pays for hers. You you pay for yours. And Jesus, though, is now in the place that he can be this perfect sacrifice. And so he was to glorify the Father in his death and resurrection. His hour had come. Several times during Jesus' ministry, it was stating that, stated that his hour had not yet come. In John 7, we're told that the Pharisees uh, wanted to kill Jesus, but they didn't. Why? Because he had already said earlier, my hour has not yet come. The hour in which he would glorify the Father by being obedient unto death. Isaiah's branch of Yahweh, the shoot from the tree stump of Jesse, faced his hour and knew that God would receive glory in his death and resurrection. And many would be saved from from God's righteous judgment from the Father because it was being poured out on his son, on Jesus, instead of them. So the good news for us is that Jesus' sacrifice purchased eternal life for those that the Father had has given to the Son. Do you see the same truth in Isaiah 4 and John 17? Let's go back to 
Isaiah 2 to 4 and see if we can read it with just more understanding. In that day, the branch of the Lord, Jesus, shall be beautiful and glorious. He's talking about the day when all the, 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 the sin and all of it's wiped away. Shall be beautiful and glorious. And it's kind of like now too. It's already not yet. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. And cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst. By a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. There are several truths in this text that are consistent with the rest of Scripture. First, we have a holy God who will not tolerate sin. It has to be judged. And you don't want any other kind of God. No matter what you think, that's the God you want. He cannot tolerate sin. It is His right to determine what is sin and what is righteous behavior. Furthermore, we're not allowed to live in the Lord's presence unless something has been done about our sin. Who is worthy to dwell in God's presence under his favor? Under his eye of favor. Those who are holy and whose names have been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Does this remind you of any other part of scripture? Anybody think about the book of Revelation? How the book is brought out and those whose names were in the book of life go into eternal life. Those who are not, don't. And then there's in Revelation, there's the new heaven and the new earth, the cornerstone of which is the new Jerusalem. So some go to life and unfortunately those whose names are not written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire. There's a judgment at the end of age of the age just as there was in Isaiah's day. When he distinguished between those who were blessed to dwell in Jerusalem and those who had fallen under God's judgment. God never changes. God has extended his mercy to us through Jesus. We are mediators of God's mercy and grace when we tell others about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God never changes. There will be a judgment for sin. So how does one's name get into the book of life? I mean, neither Isaiah nor Revelation say exactly how the names get in, in, into the book of life. Is it our good works that secure our place there? No. Verses 3 to 4 of Isaiah 4 say that all who are called holy have had their filth and bloodstains washed away by the Lord. And wash themselves, God wash it away by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. So the holy ones were once unholy. And only through the Lord's cleansing and judgment are they made clean. The branch of the Lord or the branch of Yahweh will be glorious in that day. Jesus glorified in his resurrected state among the people. God's glory and salvation through judgment. Once again, whose are the ones whose names have been written in the book of life? Surely not the ones who earned it. It's the ones that God has chosen who happen to be the ones who trust God's promises and are connected to the branch of Yahweh who we know in these days after his appearing as Jesus. One gets the sense that it's not a majority from Judah who receive and enjoy this blessing. The survivors of Israel at the end of verse 2. He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. I'm reading through the Bible this year and, 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 and the reader's Bible. I really love that. You know, no verses, just chapter uh, breaks. It tells you what chapter you're in. But I'm all, all the way up to Ezra. <clears throat> And you see the people coming back and you think, wow, that's a lot of people coming back to the land that Isaiah prophesied. But it's, it's just a very small representative of the numbers of people that have been in Jerusalem. It's just a remnant that's coming back to Jerusalem. And so it's not a, a great large number of people who enjoy this blessing of the Lord. Uh, 
It's consistent in our day. It usually usually is a remnant of the Lord's people who wear his name with pride and honor, as in verse 2. Many people in our day speak about God in rather decent and tolerable terms. But increasingly, the one who proudly proclaims Jesus as Savior are suspected, the world tends to suspect that this one will not be easily swayed to think as it thinks, and that is just unacceptable in the world's eyes. Would you agree as a believer that God's glory is the most important truth and position and reality in the world? I think most of you would agree intellectually that God's glory supersedes our own desires and designs for life. When life shows you the evil that is in this world in its fallen state, do not yield to the temptation to doubt God. How many people say, I could never trust a God who would allow this and this and this to happen? Don't let yourself doubt God's character. If he is not holy and righteous and above all, we're in big trouble. We're wasting our time. God's character is above reproach. God is sovereign and God is good. I used to say God is good all the time, all the time. God is good and it's, it's true and it's great. It's fine. I think I prefer to say God is sovereign And God is good. That acknowledges that not all times are good. You know, there are some tough times in this life. We have to, there are times where we have to say God is sovereign, but we also have to believe in our hearts that God is good no matter the evil that happens to us or all around us. If you are unable To believe both of these truths, you will be tempted to think that the culture around you is more credible than God. Just like God's people in Isaiah's day wanted to be like all the nations around them. And God was saying, hey, hey, hello, hello, trust me, I'll take care of you. Oh, no, I think we better, we just better, we got to deal with reality down here. That's nice, that pie in the sky kind of an idea. But I'm telling you, we're dealing with reality. Ultimately, the people of Isaiah's day had a failure to trust God in their hearts. What does it mean that God judges some and saves others? These verses in Isaiah are consistent with the message from Genesis to Revelation all the way through. We understand that God is glorified in salvation, but what about God being glorified through his judgment of sinners. Furthermore, God consistently says to his children, I chose you for salvation and the rest are bound to judgment. And he says it in such a way as that we ought to hear it and say, yes, thank you God for choosing me. But instead, it's, the temptation is like, what would you say? What? Some are saved, some are judged. I'm supposed to be happy about that? Now again, those who are saved are those who believe that God is true to his word and will do what he has promised. And in our day, that means we're called to repent and believe that Jesus, who was God, died on the cross to take the wrath of God upon himself so that we might not experience it for all eternity. There is no denying that God is glorified, both when people are saved and when people are judged. And if you struggle with this right now, and I know a lot of you do, and it took me many, many, many years to come to peace with this. If you struggle with that, there's going to come a day when you will not struggle with that. In Romans 9, first of Romans 9, Romans 10, Paul's heart is breaking and said, 
this is from a man who understood what he was saying. And he meant it with all his heart. I would spend eternity in hell in the place of these others if God would allow it. I would do that. And then we get to the martyrs in Revelation who say, How long, Lord, are we going to keep on with this? When are you going to do the right thing and judge these people? Not the right thing as in they were questioning God, but they know God's character at that point. One day, 1 Corinthians 13, when we know as we are known, it's all going to be okay. And not that we ever lose that heart, a broken heart for the lost in this world. Not that we ever lose that. But the sooner we accept that God is glorified both in salvation and, and through judgment, the better off our lives on this earth will be. Our calling now is to cry out to the Lord to save lost souls, but when we are in heaven, we'll understand at all times, both now and then, we are called to trust God. In his word, God distinguishes between the saved and the lost in far more direct and consequential ways than when we distinguish between friends and sport teams and political positions. God is above all and he is just and he is glorified in all that he wills and in all that he does. Isaiah 43, 3-4 states with this with un, unmistakable frankness. He, he, he talks about God's ways in this. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I will give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. In other words, God says, I will be glorified in saving you, unworthy as you are, even as I judge others. Why? Because I love you. That's all. You are precious in my sight. God's not like the bachelor in love with two women at the very end until the day he gets down on a knee and chooses. God said, I love you. I choose you. You are the apple of my eye. All of my affection is given to you. Some of you were chosen over someone else as a spouse. And maybe you, your heart goes out to the person that wasn't chosen. But most, most of all, you, you're so grateful your spouse chose you. Most days anyway. God never wavers in his love for us, the ones that he has chosen. God is going to receive his glory no matter what. But it should be our desire to participate in God receiving glory by the way that we live and the way that we trust him when life makes no sense no matter what the issue when you think about the implications of the truth articulated in Isaiah 43, God's glory always benefits His people. No matter who God is, when we learn about who He is, don't measure Him against what everybody else thinks. This, is a good, this would be a good God if He were this way. And whatever is for God's glory is good for you. Which means... That as a part of his sovereign divine plan, somehow all the things that have happened to us, look, they threaten sometimes to just beat me down, the things that have happened to me. I got things that almost nobody, you don't know what's happened to me. And I don't know what's happened to you. But if God is glorified in all of that, then it's good for me. As long as I trust. When I fail to trust, I lose sight of God's glory. It's tarnished in my eyes. And then 
I'm in the wrong way. And you don't have to be off slightly at the first to be a long way down the road off. Even if we fail to see, to accomplish, to achieve, or to have in this life what we so long for. This life, think about it, it's less than a blink. We will praise God for his glorious wisdom in all matters of life and death. And we will do so for all eternity if we are his children. For now, as you grow in your trust for God and all that is good and bad in your life, and as you trust the wisdom of God's glory in salvation through judgment, your life will improve no matter what happens to you. Immeasurably. And I recognize, sometimes folks, please understand, I always recognize this. Sometimes... Depression caused by things that happen to us. Physiological nature, it takes shape, and, and it's no different than, than, than if you have your leg cut off. In a, it, it, radically, it, 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 it changes your life. When you've been abused, when you've been the recipient of our narcissist, on and on. These things that happen to us radically change the way that we look at life. But if we believe deep down, I don't make sense of this and I have to deal with this depression. If we believe that God is glorified in our lives, our lives will improve. And then one day, Isaiah 4, 5 and 6. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. Does that remind you of anything? For over all the glory there will be a canopy, a wedding canopy, most people think. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and a refuge and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain, no matter what comes into your life, God is bigger. Isaiah uses the imagery of Exodus when Yahweh brought his people out of Egypt. The cloud by day and the fire by night. What did it do? Not only led Israel, but it also separated the people of Israel from the Egyptians. God's glory in salvation through judgment. God's holiness and presence are here in Isaiah 4. And over all this glorious scene, there will be this wedding canopy. Doesn't that remind you of Revelation 19? The marriage supper of the Lamb? <laughs> it does. This is how much God loves you. And neither the blazing heat of trials nor the storms of life will overwhelm you. The righteous and holy God... Who must judge sin. He can no more deny his character. Than you could leave a baby like you've read about. You could no more than you could leave a baby in a car. Just leave it to die. Not, not, not by accident but on purpose. Or leave it on some place. Just don't care. God cannot deny his character. He must Judge sin. And you know how we did it? He sent his son to die in our place. When you placed your trust in Jesus, he washed away the guilt and the shame of your life and he brought you under a wedding canopy. It is for his glory but it is also for meeting the deepest needs of your heart. Needs that no one else can touch. No one, that, that no one else even knows about. This is a Savior we can know and trust only because He revealed Himself to us. And said, I love you. He knows you at the deepest and most intimate places in your heart and your life. And He loves you. Trust your 
God, the one who loves you this much, you can always trust God. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, sooner or later we find out that we can't trust others. We can't trust the weather. We can't trust the stock market. We can't trust ourselves. But we can always trust you. Lord, we see through a glass dimly right now. One day, it'll all be clear to us. In the meantime, it is our heart, it is our desire, at least for the moment, to obey you, to love you, to trust you with everything in us. Uh, Lord, make it so later today or tomorrow when things come up and we just lose our place, we lose our our sense of your presence in our lives, remind us of your goodness to us who are saved. And Lord, if there's someone here today who's thinking, you know, <clears throat> I, I don't know about all this. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not a Christian and I don't know. Lord, I pray that you will make the gospel clear and that you will help those who don't know Jesus to believe. Help those of us who do know Jesus believe. We long to live in your presence. And we long to take your presence to others. And so as we take this benevolence offering. Lord with a heart that, that, that seeks to reach out and, and extend uh, grace with the love of Jesus. We pray that you would cause us to give generously. And that you would bless uh, the, the, the fruit of this money as it goes uh, to further the gospel for the saved and the lost alike. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.